0: There's Mm. no such thing as a dumb question. Challenge accepted. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeShip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fuss-free, continuous delivery, check them out at Codeship.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support? High performance? All backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash Hey everybody and welcome to episode 181 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have David Brady. Four out of five dentists recommend me. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and this week we have a special guest, Luis Lavena. Hello guys. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm the maintainer, well I can say the the creator of our Ruby Solar project. And been maintaining for the last uh, seven years the project, uh, trying to provide a stable and working environment for those the want to adventure in Ruby language on Windows environments.
0: Very cool. Before we get too deep into this, I do want to just announce really quickly that I'm pulling together a remote JavaScript conference. So if you are interested in JavaScript, you can go to jsremoteconf.com. It'll be at the beginning of February. And, uh, you can sign up. I'm also going to open up a call for proposals. So I'd appreciate people submitting if you're interested. I know this isn't a JavaScript podcast, but I know folks who listen to the show who I'm are just interested. I was going to say it, that's
2: so. a, that's a fantastic segue from Ruby, Ruby installer, Windows and absolutely
0: nothing on the show. <laughs> okay. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> so I have to say that as far as Ruby installer goes, my first dev job, like full time development job, uh, they gave me this big honkin' Windows laptop. And By big honkin', I think the thing weighed like six pounds. So setting things up included using Ruby installer because they were a .NET shop. So it wasn't a Linux machine. It wasn't a Mac. It was a Windows machine. And that was my first dev environment. I was using Ruby installer.
1: Wow. That was how long ago?
0: Probably about seven years ago. I'd been dabbling in Ruby before that, mostly programming on other systems, but.
1: Yeah. So, uh, before this, um, uh, Rubin Solar got called a Rubin Solar was known as one-click
2: Rubin Solar Yes, yes. The o- the OCI. Yes. yeah.
1: Yeah, and the problem is uh, we got a couple of a bug reports saying that it takes longer than one-click to get in solid, so <laughs> why is called one-click? <laughs> and that was the reason to change the name.
2: Bloatware.
0: <laughs> First <laughs> yeah, thing, it, it takes like, me click
2: four clicks. Slow. No! <laughs> In some cases, we've got up to seven clicks to install.
0: That's funny. yeah, yeah Multi- so that-
2: You, you should have just been the multi-click installer.
0: <laughs> there you go.
2: Well, we tried to
1: figure out if we can show ads during the install process. So in a sense, kind of like uh, help the whales or the penguins or the environment, like collect money for that. But that didn't work out. So we decided to change the name.
0: I do remember that it did take some time to install not terribly long but it wasn't like click click go it was click wait 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 go
2: yeah it doesn't say one click fast installer <laughs> right i think i used the oci back in like 2004 and yeah it was like you got ruby i want to say 1.6 i could be making that up if it was 1.8 it was an early 1.8 like yeah, 1.0 or yeah was 1. Point, yeah was
1: 8 uh 180 i think was at mm-hmm. that time yeah. Uh, the cool thing is that at that time, the the one-click installer was bundling a bunch of things. So yeah, basically didn't it, it also give you? It,
2: didn't it give you Rails as well?
1: Like the latest versions, tried to install the versions of Rails like around zero point six of Rails. Uh huh. But it didn't work out because since you might use a different database adapter, etc., was complicated. So the fault that was occurred uh, at that time. And they decided not to continue that route and uh, allow you to install at the gems on your own. Right. Yeah. So the project is like more than ten years old. Uh yeah. Was started by by other folks that uh, maintained it through the years, and then I inherited uh, the project from Hibs back in two thousand and seven. Nice. And uh, I'm being cranking releases since then, uh, and at the same time adding stuff to Ruby, trying to make it better, which is a complicated process, I must say. Mm
0: -hmm. So I'm wondering when you install Ruby on Windows, besides making the Microsoft guy, the guy that founded the company, besides making him cry, I can't remember his name. What what does it take to uh, get get it installed? Do you actually, I I don't remember there being like a GCC or anything on Windows unless I put it on there myself And, and I did that in college a little bit, but... Is that what you do? Do you like put a GCC on there and then build it? Or is there some other process behind getting Ruby to run on Windows?
1: Yeah, like the original binaries for Ruby were provided using what, uh, B- Visual C, uh, which is the Microsoft C compiler uh, that comes with Visual Studio and all that suite of tools. Now the question is like how we get on Ruby installer. The problem is that for you to build stuff, you need a compiler, like something that you can just check it out on on Linux. You do uh, apt-get or any type of package manager, and you get a compiler, and that's the sole compiler for your entire Linux installation. On Windows, you can have multiple versions of uh, compilers installed on your machine, and the one that was used by Ruby installer at that time, was 10 years old, was from 96. So that meant that compiler optimizations, quality of code, and even be able to get a copy of the compiler for you to compile things was almost impossible. So we decided to switch to GCC and the project, which is Minimal GNU for Windows, which is called mean GW. We decided to switch to it. And, well, that unleash its own hell in a sense like people complaining (laughs) because they already managed to get their visual studio running and there was like crazy times but optimization wise the performance obtained by gcc nowadays is pretty much the same performance that you can obtain with visual c in relation to crunching code, uh, branching of the compilation, etc. like the code quality, like the, the outcome binary is in similar quality. And the good thing is that it's free, that you can go and obtain the package, that you can decide to play with it, that you can automate, bundle the binaries with something else. You don't need to download a specific thing from Microsoft website, pay a license, do manual steps. You just do it with the pre-packaged binary that we distribute Mm -hmm. so it makes things more easy for us to automate the entire process uh actually the ruby installer right now is uh, self bootstrapped meaning that you only need to have a running ruby version in order to compile things entirely so it's going to download the compiler compile the dependencies that are needed compile ruby and then generate you an installer so it's basically anyone can go and check it out and build their own installer at this time. Cool. So, oh, you mentioned Bill Gates. That yeah, was I was, I was like,
0: talking about Bill Gates, but I couldn't remember his name. So he cried <laughs> when you, uh, you know, put this uh, linux E programming language on Windows, I'm I'm sure. Anyway, I remember back in the day, I really haven't worked on Windows for a while other than just showing people, here's how you install Ruby, on windows. And then they generally don't have too many problems getting gems installed. But I remember back in the day, it was kind of a problem. You actually wound up installing like the windows versions that would connect to DLLs instead of uh, trying to do some kind of build process for things like Nokogiri and stuff. How has that story changed from then to now where now it seems like you just gem install Nokogiri and it seems to know the right thing to do?
1: Yeah, there were multiple steps in this. One was fixes to Ruby gems to detect properly platforms. And since Bundler uses uh, Ruby gems in that sense, detected things properly. Then was trying to, well, here's the thing. Most of the gem authors are running Linux or uh, Mac. So they don't have a Windows machine in order to go test and compile things for Ruby developers. I can go in length to all the projects that mentions like, If you use Windows, you're on your own or switch to Mac, in a sense. And basically, there is no solutions for them. So we try to figure out how to help them, in a sense, not to be a burden to support Windows, but at the same time, to make it the life easier for developers to provide binaries for Windows. So we came up with something called Ray Compiler which is a gem that you use on your project, gives you some structure and allows you with some sort of tools that you can install on your machine to cross-compile from your Mac or Linux environment to Windows and target Windows to provide those binaries. Basically, MySQL, MySQL2, uh, gem, which is a Postgres client, Bcrypt, SQLite libraries, all those gems are using this to provide uh, cross binaries, so provide already precompiled binaries for Windows, and you just go and, and run it, and there's no compilation required. Other gems are not listed there, like they're not adding those infrastructure because conflicts with gem developers or conflicts with gem developers mostly. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can still download the dev kit, which is the the compiler tool chain that includes GCC, all the supporting libraries, and you can compile most of the tools. Uh, You can use that to, for example, install Evan machine when there is like a pre release that doesn't have pre compiled binaries, or you can uh, build your own version of uh, SQLite to use a different version of the SQLite binary, the supporting library. Mm -hmm. So all those things happened in the last three or four years it got much better but still there are like cases where gems are not they're not working out of the box on windows and uh contributors send patches to like correct some definitions or some platform situation like checking for win as darwin platform instead of checking for darwin or checking for MinGW gw mm-hmm. as platform it's something like similar to this this issue on why Microsoft decided to call Windows 10 instead of Windows 9. And that was because there's a lot of code out there that is checking for 9. So if you're, the, the version of Windows starts with 9, it's going to assume that it's Windows 95 or 98 and it's not Windows 9. So that's well, why they decided to go uh, with uh, Windows 10 for versioning.
0: I just thought they wanted to be cool like Jim Weirich because the first fully released version of Rake was uh, version 10. Anyway, yeah, that that's really interesting. And I think the tool chain, the compile tool chain story is kind of an interesting one. And it's, uh, I, I have to say that I'm actually very happy with the way things have gone. I've done a couple of workshops at different conferences, especially like open source conferences locally on how to build stuff in Rails. And it's nice that it just seems to work. How does the Ruby installer project relate to the Rails installer project?
1: Well, the Rails installer project actually takes the Ruby installer binaries and just bundles the extra gems on it. That's basically it. It bundles uh, Git and a couple of other components in order for you to get up and running with the project, but it uses the same binaries from Ruby installer. So when we release Ruby installer, we, we released two packages. Actually, three. One is installer that you just uh, double-click, next, next, and you're done. But I suggest you read the instructions, uh, that you read the screens, you pay attention to them. The second one is a binary that you, if you're more experienced, that you just uh, download that package, extract it in some directory, and you can use it. Uh, the cool thing is that, it's, uh, that you can relocate. The binary, So you can put it on a pen drive and go to somewhere else with a computer and run it Ruby from the pen drive without installation. And the third other package that we do is separate the documentation, the generated documentation into another package because the documentation takes a huge amount of size when you uncompress. So it's around 25 megabytes. So we, we separate it. So if you want to automate a server installation, you are going to use the binary package and not the installer. And you might not need the help file to run it on the server. So that's why. And things got a little bit more complicated now that we have two versions of the installer. One that is 32 bits and the other one that is 64. Windows uh, 64 bits, it's capable to run both versions without any performance issues. Like you can run 32 bits without any degradation, you can run 64-bits. The only difference is that you can allocate more memory on the processes on the 64-bits version. Right. So we released two versions of the installer, two versions of the binaries, and one single documentation package. So people can go grab those things and build their own thing. Uh, there is another project on, I think it's similar to Rails, Rails installer that was created by some folk in, I think was Philippines to create for their workshops, to create a Bootstrap environment. I I don't remember the name. Something around Rails Bootstrap project or something like that? I don't remember.
2: I wanted to backtrack a little bit. You talked about the DevKit gem. And one of the things that I've noticed that's kind of going dark in the Ruby mindshare, the collective consciousness of, of Ruby development, is how to compile things from C and how to build your own extensions. And it's actually been removed from the pickaxe books, which makes me very sad, but I I understand why they're doing it. But if you have like the 187 pickaxe, there's like an entire chapter on extending Ruby and embedding it in, you know, from C. And I wonder if I'm building a gem that has some stuff that's, that's gotta be compiled. Can you at a high level, kind of walk me through what I would have to do to make it build and run on Windows? Is it is it very easy? Can I just cross-compile it from my Mac or my Linux machine? Or do I need to... I mean, obviously, I would want a Windows machine to test on, but can you kind of explain how do I get my C code from, you know, out of Emacs on Linux and into a binary on Windows? Sure. That actually got pretty easy nowadays.
1: You can do a bundle init to initialize a gem. Then you can add the as a dependency of your gem Ray Compiler, which will allow you to have a a structure to your extension, to your C extension. You will need to write the C code for the C extension. There are a couple of uh, Uh guides on that. And once you're done, you can compile natively. And today, well... In the last couple of months, there has been a CI environment for uh, Windows called App Bayor. I don't know how you pronounce that in English, but allows you to run natively your process on, on a Windows server. Rake compiler. So my pronunciation is not good. So, um, one of the things that you can do is once you have that set up, you can test it on this uh, continuous integration environment. And then you can use another component, which is Rate compiler dev box. It's similar to the Rails dev box that you can just put and then cross-compile your project. It already has the compilers installed in it. Cool. So, for example, you can do your own work of creating the jam, uh, running tests locally, then you can set it up at VR to do the cross-compilation to the native compilation on Windows, say see that it passed and then you can just use Rake dev box, the Rake compiler Deadbox box,
2: to cross-compile and release the gem. That is way less terrifying and painful than I was expecting it to be. This basically boils down to grab Rake compiler and run it, and write your C code, and then run it to compile, and you're done.
1: Yeah. The only thing that you need to be aware of is the Unix system in your C code. And so far, for example, if you you need to write a gem that depends on external libraries, uh, first you will need to figure out if that dependency can compile on Windows. There are some dependencies right. that, are, that are not possible, uh, so there is no solution for those things. Yeah. But there are others, like for example, there is no fork on Windows. There is yeah. no fork functionality, so you will you will not use that. But other things are already being ported, supported natively. So there is actually what you can see as a drawback to be those type of things. If you need to depend on the third-party library, most likely that library already works in Windows. And not just to support uh, any other C developer, but also to support .NET developers and so on. So most likely there is already a binary, or you can compile the package to work on Windows directly.
0: So in the email you sent us, I, I'm going to change uh, directions a little bit here. Uh, you mentioned, is it Uru, which is uh, basically uh, a Ruby version manager for Windows?
1: Yeah, Uru is kind of like what you get with RBM or change Ruby, chRuby, or something like that. It provides you the basic functionality to change the active version of uh, Ruby running on your environment. And um, as you know, for example, RBM in the past has been write, uh, written entirely in Bash in order to be able to uh, modify the current shell process that you're working on. So something similar happens on Uru, which is using batch processes or PowerShell to modify your current environment without doing a subshell, in a sense, like without like going deep into nested shells. Mm-hmm. So the good thing about Uru is that it's cross-platform. I use it on OS Ten, and I also use it on Windows to change versions and that gives me some consistency when I'm working on projects. Actually, one of the things that I, I love to train my my memory to do the same thing. So when I'm using Windows or when I'm using Mac, I can type it in the same commands and it, it works. Right. I even have a a fake pseudo script to remind me that I'm not sitting in front of my <laughs> Mac computer. So just to avoid me being dumb, like not noticing that I'm in front of my PC.
2: So <laughs> I have a... Uh... An executable shell script on my Linux box called dir, dir. And if I type it from Linux, it pops up a big thing that says, Hey, stupid, you're on a Linux box. Use ls. And on Windows, you guessed it. I have a batch file called ls.bat that says, Hey, stupid, you're not on Linux. Use dir to get a directory listing. And it's, yeah, it, I, I see no reason why your shell shouldn't be hostile to you. <laughs> One of the things, as you mentioned, like just to,
1: you have your memory trained in some way. People that is coming to Ruby, they are being pumped with a lot of things coming from Linux environments. And they're like, let's say they're just getting started. Like they just close their Visual Studio window and jump it into this common prompt that is uh, the version of the terminal on Windows. And they have no idea how to, to do things. And there is a, like a step learning curve to go from nothing to be actually efficient working on, on the command line independently of where you are. Like, for example, people that, that say, like, I have this Windows problem and immediately suggest use Linux. They ignore that there is a big knowledge that they don't have meaning that once it's not just knowing about Linux and getting that installed, it's also knowing about Bash, knowing about all the other alternatives, knowing how to get that on running, what editors they're going to use, etc. So there is a lot of things hidden in that single sentence that discourage people from actually using Ruby. So is your shell being aggressive? It's something that we, we can do once you're familiar with it. But Uh, people being aggressive to you, that's
2: something. Oh, yeah, yeah. I should, I should point out that having your shell be hostile to you is only acceptable if it's a form of personal self-hate. Like, (laughs) if, if my shell was hostile to you, that would be unacceptable. But if it's hostile to me, then that's, that's totally fine. Right? It's, if I were to sit down and, you know, run Uru, Ruby, you know, execute thing and it came back and it said, you know, don't use Uru, stupid. You know, I would be like, uninstall all of the things, right? I, I would just like violently uninstall everything. Yeah. If you're, if you're going to have a hostile system, it should be consensual is what I'm saying. <laughs> you should yeah, be, <laughs> you should be, you know. I want to train myself, I want to learn this and I'm okay if if the machine, you know, gives me a punishment shock uh when I do something wrong. But yeah, I I do agree with you and and actually there was a time when like, like 10 years ago when I was first getting into Linux where if I still I had the dir.bat and I had the or the the dir shell script and the ls.bat and they would actually they would put a banner up that said I think you, you know, you type dir and on Linux, it would say, "I think you meant ls," and then it would execute the ls with all of the arguments that I typed to dir. So if I typed, you know, dir, you know, star dot pdf or whatever, it would say, "Hey, I think you meant ls star dot pdf," and then it would give me the listing. And that was a lot friendlier. And when I was originally trying to learn Linux, I felt that was a lot less hostile and a lot less, you know, and and now that I'm older and crankier. I need bigger sticks to beat myself with. Uh, it's <laughs> indeed, yeah, yeah. So I do yeah, the same. So yeah, it's it's not cool for other people to beat me with sticks, but if I hit myself with a stick, that's okay.
1: <laughs> it is a, a tricky thing. I, I deal with this um, on a daily basis for for the past. I will say more than I was involved in Ruby installer, I was I knew Ruby when I was uh, working on Linux environments of building systems. I come uh, from a past that uh, it's involved with private technology. It's uh broadcast systems. And uh, being there uh, forces you to use uh, Windows. So I needed to switch to Windows to work on those things. I was using Linux at that time. Kind of like I, I installed Slackware using floppy drives floppy disks when i was like in the night oh,
2: yeah yeah yeah
1: so th- those type of things like the the learning of those type of things takes a really a uh, big amount of time and what i see nowadays is that well as you mentioned like we are cranky on our on ourselves like kind of like a sticking our uh, with a bigger stick uh but there's like people being cranky to others too and that has like uh a negative effect on, on like, I, I, I always encourage for adapt- adoption of, of Ruby on yeah. any environment to, to do th- simple things or to do more complex things. Uh, for me, it serves the purpose of prototyping applications when I was working on that market. And uh, nowadays I use it, Ruby on a daily basis mm-hmm. and, um, being not inclusive into the different options and the way people react to those things it's really negative like I see it as a negative maybe I'm I'm getting deep into a conflict you know, into a conflicted subject so maybe we should step back laugh and talk I about feel, something else I'm, okay. I'm
2: feeling a little bit guilty that I'm being exclusive to myself I no I, I don't have the attention span to go that deep into meta <laughs> <laughs> But no, I, I think you're right. Though I, I, there, there's a big difference between what we do to ourselves to teach ourselves, and there's a and what we do to make things inclusive uh, to other people. Sp- speaking to uh, of inclusiveness, is there any truth to the rumor that I'm starting right now that the Ruby installer is actually a subversive attempt to get people out of Windows and into Linux by foisting open source projects onto them? I
1: don't know where you heard that, but Please it's not us. true. Please say yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, w- I was going to cite my source as the pre-call, Luis. <laughs> well, I'm going to, to phrase it
1: differently.
0: Uh, He's smarter than us, Dave.
1: Take the example of uh, OpenOffice. If you want to people to migrate from Office suites that run on Windows and you want people to migrate, you need to provide them the tools that are used to use in order for you to then switch their platform. So what you can do is start slowing the migration from the Office suite into LibreOffice or OpenOffice for them to start familiarizing with the tool. And then the underlying operating system becomes irrelevant. So in a sense, you are changing the entire infrastructure they're using, the entire solution they're using, switching for something that you can either manage or support or whatever type of thing or cost less yeah. Uh, without uh, affecting them uh, in a disruptive way, like it's not something that uh, you are trying to fix a Excel formula and someone comes and tells you, "Oh, you just need to use uh, LibreOffice," and they don't give right. you the solution. So, in a sense, Ruby Solar is that thing that you're saying. I'm not going to repeat it, but. Uh, <laughs> But in a sense to show that you can run Ruby on Windows, uh, make you discover this new area of uh, something that if you're coming from a .NET or a Java environment where you never interacted with anything other than a Windows environment, using a tool that encourages you to start learning those things or to show you those things and the power associated with those, it becomes really, really powerful. And once you do that, making the switch to Linux is less disruptive.
2: Yeah.
1: It's affect less the, the person and affects less the, the outcome. They will see the productivity coming from that decision instead of the upfront learning curve. Yeah. So
2: I didn't say it, but yes. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I can neither confirm nor deny, but yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice. So I'm not a Windows developer, but I'm sure there are some people who listen to the show who are or who can contribute in a way that would make Ruby Installer better. How can people get involved in the project?
1: Everything that we do on the Ruby Installer project is it's open. It's inside the one-click GitHub organization, one-click being the joke. <laughs> And everything is there, like from the how we build the installers to right now the initiative of building the new website. As I mentioned, on every release, we have a massive amount of manual steps to just to announce the changes. So it takes time to collect that information, to upload the files to the places to download the releases, etc. And, um, the idea of people contributing is from being able to respond questions that people is asking to the point to do copy writing to do copy correction, so like you know this instruction here is wrong because I needed to do this a, B, and C instead of what you put it there which is x, y c, so people can feel free to open pull requests to improve that. The idea with the new website is to. Have something not on a database, but something on files that you can just fork it or just use uh, GitHub to edit or open issues for that to be improved or just helping out with people on the mailing list. We have a Google group uh, mailing list for Rubin Solar, which people join to ask questions from having problems with gems to connecting with different database uh, servers. It's, it's a wide range of questions and people, the community is small, but very helpful on that. You can just search for, uh, for something that's been asked before or just ask it and you will be pointed by the people that is
2: involved.
0: Yeah.
1: I I think we're building a small community. Like we've been building that for the last couple of years. People is, uh, using more and more. Ruby Solar, at least the last three months of almost a million downloads of different versions of Ruby proves that at least people is downloaded. I don't know what they're doing with it, but they are downloading it. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they're bots trying to.
0: Well, one thing that I've seen within the last little while is a, a rapid uptick in the number of these outreach programs. And yeah. we've talked about them on the last few shows, uh the out for outreach programs like Railsbridge or Girls Who Code or you know, some of these others where it's, hey, you know, let's go and uh install Ruby or install Rails and teach people how to start to program. And I would be willing to bet that some of that uptick that you're seeing is the response of the community, you know, trying to bring more people into it. And the yeah. fact that you know, we're bringing non-technical people in or less technical people in means that best case scenario, they have a Mac so we can just say, okay, RVM, go. But most people are on Windows. And so the outreach programs, you know, help them get that set up through things like Rails Installer and Ruby Installer.
1: Yeah. There is another initiative, which is Rails Girls. Yes. Um, uh, I participated uh, a couple of months ago on Rails Girls Buenos Aires event, being a coach. And specifically the case was Windows Machines, the uh, the team that I had to work with to have Windows Machine, and I cheated. What I did was come with a pen drive with everything installed there into a, an um, executable form that you just extracted into your desktop and you're good to go. And everything is Ruby installed, all the gems for Rails, all, all the components necessary, even image magic for you to get up and running. And that that was like, I, I cheated. While others were fighting with RBM our, and different versions of their uh, Mac or Linux and all those kind of things, we had
2: the system up and running in 30 minutes. So, Luis, <sighs> do you have documentation anywhere of how you built that pen drive? I actually involve uh, a couple of uh, manual steps, but like I have a a
1: a markdown file that describe it.
2: Yeah. I would love to get together with you after this call and put together like a blog post and a screencast or whatever. I would love to be able to just say, hey, you want to do Windows? Run this, do that, you know, do these things and stick this on a pen drive and you're good to go. We were talking earlier about exclusive versus inclusive. And yeah, I talk about being abusive to myself, but when you talk about in- including other people, if you can say, grab this, drop it on a USB key and you're done, that is fantastic, especially for people, you know, coming in from Windows where they're they're almost afraid of, you know, how do I set this up? What do I run? They're not used to using command.exe, you know, the shell or the terminal. Yeah. That would be that would be fantastic. I would love to get together with you afterwards and document that. That would be fa- sure. that would be amazing. Yeah,
0: yeah, and so, maybe also provide an image so that people can just exactly you know they I, just slurp it and drop it. They don't even have to set it up.
2: I will admit to being selfish. I want that pen drive, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm willing to document it for the community in order to get it. How much you're willing to pay
0: for it? <laughs> I uh, like you. All, I like you all the more for that, Luis. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: No, I'm. I'm. What I was. Um, I, I keep saying the jokes of uh, why I do all this, and it's because I was in that situation at some point, like yeah. not having enough tools and everything. And uh, I follow the. Maybe I'm old school, but I follow the mantras like scratch your own itch. Yes. And uh, I, I suffered that much doing those things that I decided just to try to fix it and. It is hard. It is hard to, like, there's, there's many challenges that people face it nowadays that for us that we, that we're already beyond the bump of the learning curve for us is easy, but newcomers have, like, really hard time to grasp all this. Like, for example, bash. What is bash? What's just RBM? How do I get RBM? Oh, curl. What is curl to download it? And then, like, oh, you need to edit your bash profile. What is that? Mm-hmm. and like all those kind of things that you see on on these events to be uh like people asking what you're doing and kind of like you do an on an autopilot and then yeah. you realize that there is so much thing that we give like it's granted that is people is not actually paying attention to it anymore
2: yeah yeah.
1: So uh yeah, sure. Um we can negotiate. I mean that I can give you the the instructions for that. <laughs> and Excellent. um yeah, and uh it will be great if you record a screencast. That, that yeah, that that okay. would be perfect. People okay. will benefit from it. Yeah. Cool. One of the things that
2: um crud, we I, talked about that on the air, so I'm totally on the hook now, aren't I? You know yes. what,
0: maybe what we could yep. do is uh set something up kind of like we did for our code reading. And that way people can yeah. come, come alongside and watch and comment and all that. Oh, that'd stuff. be
2: fun. That'd be fun. So, all right. Cool. So, yeah, I would like to, to watch that. I mean,
1: uh, watch it. You're going to gonna be guys. on it. <laughs> uh, oh, really? Yeah. So here is a uh, room That's exactly. just kidding. Trying my, my presenter. Uh, That's, right. That's right. So, um, too bad we don't have a Abby. I was a, a fan. I was going to ask for an autograph to say that uh, he
2: loves me or something like that. Anyway, so, I could probably twist his arm <laughs> and get him to get him to sign you something. <laughs> that would be
0: awesome. <laughs> don't hurt him, Dave. So,
1: so one of the things I did, I mention about the the website initiative. It, it that that is not something that is live,
2: oh, but it's something not- that. Not yet. Talk about that. Because you're, what, you're looking to do a makeover of your website. Will you talk a bit about how, how difficult it is to just update the website when you want to release a new version? Is there more to the website initiative that you want to do?
1: Yes. Uh, one of the things is, you remember Ruby, Ruby Lang website got a redesign not long ago. And that redesign involved moving from, uh, Radian, which was the CMS they used at that time to Jekyll in order to be able to have the multiple languages and more contributors be able to provide pull requests with modify with edits yeah. uh, the idea of this is move to uh, ruby Solar website on the same path but instead of going uh, going Jekyll do the complexity of getting Jekyll run on Windows, we decided to go with a minimal tool that the project itself is going to download for you so you basically just have Ruby Solar. Clone the repository and then you can preview, create new articles and do new releases. Since we have the automated process of building the releases, uh, we generate the release information file from that. And then we place it on the website. We do the comment and that gets live into the website. So the idea is make it uh, streamline things a bit more. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the website, it's part of the one click organization. There is like a brand new design in a sense which is not fully completed, but give you an idea of what we're aiming, trying to showcase the latest releases, trying to show you if there is um, uh, like, if you download a version that it's already dead, like uh, 187, tell warn you about it. They're, you're not going to get updates from it, so you download version 2, or you download version 2.1, for example, and point you what what comp- compiler toolchain goes with it just in case you mess things up. I sometimes I forget about that. And then I put the wrong dev kit on the ra- on the wrong version of Ruby and things that don't compile. And I was like, what's wrong with this? And it's me doing things wrong. So the idea is on the website trying to improve that. And also there is another a small initiative, which is making the dev kit installation process simpler. Which is the one that I was just complaining about. When you install a gems, we detect that we find that you need a compiler and we detect that you, if you have a compiler running or not. And if you don't, it provides you the link to go to download the dev kit, how to follow from there. And that's provided by Ruby gems infrastructure. Like they provide you all that bootstrapping elements. The idea is to make it that even much smarter and download the right dev kit for your environment so you don't mess things up. Uh, so reduce manual steps and trying to make people more happy. It's fun that we receive a lot of comments about downloading dev kits and not working for them and then realize that it's the wrong one. Even there is like a big legend saying what version you should download. <laughs> you just click around like, as you say, click next, 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 next. Yep. In a sense. So those are the two the two things that are that are open right now that we would like to have uh something deployed by the end of the year. There is the another initiative which is getting back we, we used to have a continuous integration environment to build Ruby itself and to have that tested so it provides a better test coverage for uh native Windows builds. Yeah. And um, we're working with with some folks on that, trying to get that back and running, which takes time. It's server setup, uh, workers, because it needs to get a work and running natively, all those kind of things. Yeah. So it takes some time.
0: Well, we're getting close to uh, needing to wrap up, but I do want to ask really quickly about chocolatey, which is something that you mentioned in the, the email. It looks really cool, kind of the, the apt get or brew for Windows. Do you, do you want to explain what that is and, and maybe how you're thinking about using it with Ruby Installer?
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, like, for example, on, on brew, you can download packages, binary packages, for tools that you use either on the command line or if you use uh, brew cask, you can get applications. Well, chocolate I don't know how to pronounce it. Ch- Chocolatey. <laughs> uh, Chocolate, Oh, It's okay. <laughs> Provides you the same type of solution. It packages tools like, for example, 7 which is a compressor or can provide you support for uh, Ruby or the dev kit. So in a sense, you can run similar to what you can run for getting brew. You run a similar command to get Chocolatey installed on your system. And then from there, you just do Choco install uh, Ruby and you get the version of Ruby. You, you don't no longer care about downloading the installer, doing, uh, double click next, next, next. And you, you no longer care about that. They are right now working on a Kickstarter project. The idea with the Kickstarter project is to be able to build a better infrastructure. They have like massive number of packages, more than 2000 packages right now that covers from Libraries that you can use to tools that you can download. You can think about Chocolate as an extension of NuGet, which is a package manager for .NET that allows you to download dependencies that you can use. Uh, in this case, it's something for end-user applications that you can download, use like, for example, uh, Download Background or virtual box, those type of things. The idea with having a uh, room installer working properly with Chocolate uh, they already have the packages, but support all the other versions is that allow you to to switch versions and you just download one single command to get all the versions ra- uh, that you need installed. So, in a sense, it's if you're familiar with the with the command line, you can use it. Uh, Chocolatey is also used for automation. So, if you need to automate a server deployment, let's say a Windows server deployment that needs several packages, you can do it also with Chocolatey. They have like a nice automation uh, script, and there's other projects associated with it that take advantage of it. So the Kickstarter project, the idea is to invest more on this and to be able to have a better common line, a better integrate with the new technology that's coming on Windows 10, which is uh, One Get, uh, in order to get binary packages from the Windows Store. This is kind of like a, another source of binary packages. I think I'm am I'm saying it right. So, yeah, it's kind of like you can think of chocolate being the effort of what a homebrew does or what APT get does for you from Ubuntu or Debian people. So, in a sense it's it's not losing that power, the command line power and automation that you can get. So, let's say you get you need to get a Windows machine, your development Windows machine, you use it I used to install from the text editor to the dependencies that I use for the worker machine for the continuous integrations systems that run on Windows. So I think it's worth it.
0: Very nice. I just want to point out, too, that the Kickstarter campaign ends basically five days from when this releases. So if you're listening to this around when it comes out, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, gee, I might want to go check that out. If this is something that will really help you out, you should definitely go and check it out and go and support the project if you need it or you think it'll be good for the community. So just add some urgency there.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's now in the last couple of days and they're half through uh, yeah. the goal. So it will be great if people like, definitely if some some of the things that people complain about Windows is that it requires a lot of uh, manual work. And these like, these solutions, uh, pro, like, these are the solutions to those problems. And, um, uh, being, having people actively working in those solutions in order to, to simplify your life are totally worth the effort. For yeah. example, I back at them. I don't like, I don't, I, I'm not interested in, on the hoodie or the, on the t-shirt. I'm interested on what they, they offer. And if you're, if you're working a company on a net shop or, A Ruby shop that that runs on Windows for any reason, the ideas have professional plans for you to grab uh, binaries of of other tools. So you might want to take a look to those plans in order to get support to those and automation. Like, I think it's totally worth it. and You should check it out.
2: Awesome.
0: Very cool. All right. Well, is there anything that we uh, should have asked about Ruby Installer? I have one more question, but I want to make sure we cover Ruby Installer. Uh Sure, go ahead. All right, so uh, my question is, given where Ruby Installer and Rails Installer and some of these other tools, Uru, are for, a, you know, kind of solving the pain points that people have had in the past with Windows, what is the largest barrier at this point to people coming into Ruby on a Windows environment? Wow. <laughs> I mean, where where are they getting stuck now?
1: Well, they're getting stuck on a couple of things. Uh, they're getting stuck in documentation or the lack of an updated tutorial to cover like from zero to to productivity with up-to-date tools. I try to do it a couple of times, but the problem with tutorials is that they run uh, obsolete uh, in a couple of months. We have a wiki that contains instructions, but what normally happens is that people just skim the instructions and just download things and they they don't because they skimmed the instructions, they don't know what to do well afterwards. So I was thinking on Rubin Solar put a kind of like a paywall, but a read wall on Rubin Solar that you read it, and once you actually read the thing, you can download the installer. But that was just a joke. I think it's mainly documentation, the contribution and the documentation, and up-to-date guides to cover the, the process. Things have changed a lot in the last couple of years, and they're going to continue to change, and uh, change is something that we cannot uh, avoid. Uh, that is like it's great that we are continuing evolving, finding those problems. I think the project will benefit more from people that suffers those things and be able to give feedback. I think one of the biggest drawbacks is when you're uh, working in a vacuum space, that you work on a tool that you think and the approach that you're taking is going to solve the problem. But then when you release it, people just complain about the way you, you did things instead of coming before during the process and tell you how they are doing things in order for you to take that as a sample to work out how you build the tools. So I send it over, uh, a couple of requests for, uh, for comments, uh, for Ruben Solar trying to improve that, those are scenarios. We gather some feedback, and those are the things that we're working right now. But we need people to speak out. The only barrier there is just get a GitHub account to comment on issues or join it, the Google Groups mailing list in order to comment. Those are that's the lowest barrier. And people that is using the tools can go and chime in and say, "This is my personal opinion," or "This is this is how I use it," or "This is how I think you should be use it." And we will appreciate that feedback. So far, feedback has been low on those type of things. And since we're working on a tool that's going to benefit everybody, it will be great if everybody can join and contribute to the idea. So that's it. Like more people joining and contributing, at least with ideas. There is like challenges to get things running on Ruby installer are pretty much automated. And if something that you don't like, pretty much everything is writing in Ruby code. So you just go and change it and it's done. So the entry, the, 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 the lowest point for entry is just be willing to, to contribute.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, should we go ahead and do some picks? Sure. David, do you want to start us off with picks? You bet. I have just one pick, but
2: I've been out for three weeks, so I've got one really good one. I've been thinking about this for a while now, actually. I've been kind of jealous of Avdi's beer picks. I I don't drink, but I love the thought and the care that he puts into these picks. And I know Josh and Saran have picked you know cookbooks and foods in the past. And I don't think Katrina picked any food-related picks, but I know personally that she's a bit of a foodie. And I got thinking about this, and you're going to ruin
0: my life, aren't you?
2: I'm about to ruin your life directly through your sinuses. I want to start doing hot sauce picks. So I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction. So this will be a longer pick than usual. Those that have those of you that have missed my long picks, here we go. I'll try to keep this under about four minutes, though. With hot sauces, the thing about it is that the, the the big Complaint that I hear from people is they're like, I don't like hot sauce because I like to taste my food. And I, I just want to look at these people and say, no, it's not like that. If you're, if you can't taste your food, you've put a sauce that's too hot for you on it. And the reality is, is that you can train yourself to higher and higher amounts of heat. And the best way to do that is to use a sauce that's too hot and dilute it down. If you use a weak sauce, Actually, there's another fair argument. People that say, I like to taste my food, are probably putting sauces on their food that are not hot enough. So, for example, Tabasco sauce is actually not a very hot sauce, but all it is is cayenne pepper and vinegar. And so to get any kind of heat on your food, you've basically got to pickle your food in vinegar. (laughs) And so people say, well, I like to taste my food. Okay. If you're, if you're saying you can't taste the food because all you taste is pain. Okay. Well, pain is a flavor. <laughs> it's <laughs> or, a very good flavor. <laughs> as I, as I like to put it, pain is a spice and it can be used well. But yeah, with some of the weaker sauces, you get so much of these other ingredients mixed in that it, it messes up with the flavor. And so I, I need to introduce another thing that some of the foodies out there will be familiar with, but that is the Scoville scale. Now, this is, a metric of how hot something is and what the Scoville scale is, is how many times they have to dilute something before somebody cannot taste that there's any spice in the food at all anymore. Okay. So for example, Tabasco sauce has a Scoville unit rating of about 2,500. That means you have to put like one drop in 2,500 drops of water And you can't taste that there's any Tabasco in the water anymore. It's been diluted too much. Okay. Point of reference for, and this is a racist term, but I'm a white person and it was told to me by an actual Thai woman. So I'm going to say that as a white man, I get to own this phrase. Jalapenos are the top end of spicy food for white people. Okay. If you don't like spicy food, you know what I'm talking about. If you have any friends that are from South America or from Thailand or any other, you know, like like Saran talks about watching people eat Ethiopian food, which is often very spicy. You know, those kind of people, they eat spicy food all the time. And people of European descent typically don't. Okay, so a jalapeno is kind of at the top end of our range, right? So just for a benchmark... Jalapenos are about 5,000 Scovilles, so about twice as hot as, as Tabasco sauce, okay? Everybody kind of on board here? Okay, so one big problem with hot sauces and, like, especially the super hot sauces is that they have to be concentrated so much that they often taste... You know, Saran dared me to come up with a really good phrase for this. So here we go. For those of you that have missed my sense of humor, a lot of super hot sauces taste like sphincters pickled in gasoline. Wow. (laughs) They they just taste awful. It's it's like – it really is. I mean, you're you're sitting there – I'm going to
0: find my mute button. Keep going. Yeah,
2: yeah. So – a lot of people are like, I like to taste my food. I don't want to taste gasoline and buttholes, right? And that's what a lot of these, these sauces do. They absolutely wreck your food, okay? So if we know that you can train yourself to a hotter ability, you know, the ability to eat hotter and hotter foods, and you know that there – and some of you are just learning this now – that there are sauces out there that don't taste awful, ridiculously awful – then what is a perfect beginner's serious hot sauce? And that is my pick for today. My, today. my pick for you is the hot sauce that got me addicted to serious hot sauces. And that is Blair's Sudden Death Sauce. Okay? This is a pure, clean heat with an amazing buzz aftertaste. It, it, it doesn't really have an aftertaste, but you get this buzz after you eat it. And I, I think it's because it's got ginseng in it, but I don't know. What I do know is that it's so hot that it doesn't really have a flavor, okay? This means that you put it in some food, and then you eat the food, and you taste the food. But there's also hot to it now. Now it's a spicy food. And you can take things that have never been spicy before and make them into spicy foods. And it's amazing, okay? Okay. I do have to give you a caveat with this. You need to use this sauce one drop at a time, and you need to mix it into food. You don't ever want to get this straight on your tongue or on your fingers, okay? This is a hot sauce that I have accidentally gotten just an ink stain on my finger, and an hour later, I noticed my finger was kind of itchy and sore, and about two hours later... I had basically like a sunburn on the side of my finger. I had actually burned. This is a hot sauce that is so hot, it will burn your fingers. It will burn your skin. Okay? It is 105,000 Scovilles. Okay? So 21 times hotter than a jalapeno. Okay? For those of you playing along with the home game, ghost peppers are the big, you know, oh, ghost peppers are the hottest thing in the universe. They really are. Those are a million Scovilles. Okay. So this is a hot sauce. It is way too hot to eat straight. A friend of mine accidentally spilled a drop of it into a dry hot skillet. She was about to do like a a spicy stir fry and she didn't know this would happen. She heated up the skillet. She put a drop of the hot sauce into the skillet first. One drop. She tear gassed her entire house. Okay, she had to she had to leave the kitchen. She had to open the sliding glass door, open all the windows in the house. Okay, it was awesome. This is a dangerous food. <laughs> okay, but and this is the other thing that I'll my 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 any hot sauce picks that I'll do in the future, I will do much shorter. I and I realize I'm way more than four minutes. I'm not, I think I'm pushing like ten. I'm sorry, guys. Here's your food. This pairing. is interesting. Here's your food pairing for Blair's sudden death sauce. Okay, I'm going to give you two because it, you need this bonus. Bonus. The first food pairing is for all the bachelors and college students out there. Top ramen or cup noodle soup. I'm not kidding. Okay. What you do, uh, I like to do this with cup noodle soup. Shake up the bottle of hot sauce and uncap it. And there'll be a little, the, the bottle has a narrow neck on it. So when you uncap it, there'll be this little bubble of, of just a thin, you know, bubble of sauce in the top neck of the bottle. You take a toothpick and you pop that bubble. And now you have a toothpick that is stained red. Okay? It doesn't really even have a drop on it. It's got like half a drop on it. You take the toothpick and you just drop it in the bowl of ramen or you put it in your dry cup of noodles and then pour the boiling water over the toothpick as you pour it into the noodles. You now have spicy ramen or spicy noodles. It tastes (coughs) amazing because it still tastes like pork or beef or chicken, but it's got this tongue piercing heat to it. And as you, if you want it hotter, you put a bigger drop. If you want to get insane, you can actually start to pour directly from the bottle. But please don't do this first. Use just the toothpick first. Okay. The second food pairing, which will absolutely blow your mind. And if this does not get you addicted to hot sauce, nothing else will. Okay. Hot chocolate. I'm not kidding. Ah. Okay. Make yourself up a big, You know, nice 12-ounce cup of Stevens hot cocoa, like mint or hazelnut. It's okay if it's a flavored hot chocolate because, remember, the hot sauce doesn't have a flavor. So you make up a nice creamy cup of hot chocolate and do the same toothpick thing. You can use a little bit bigger toothpick because there's some sugar in the hot cocoa, and that tends to cut the heat a little bit. Stir that into your hot cocoa and drink it. And what happens is you take this sip. You get the warmth, and you smell the chocolate. You can't smell the hot sauce at all. You get this burst of sweet, chocolatey flavor, and then something awful happens to your mouth (laughs) as the hot, spicy kicks in and grabs you, and then it lets go. (laughs) And you swallow, and you taste the chocolate again. And it is this amazing... Any foodies out there know that you, some foods you eat that you just have this experience when you eat them. And hot cocoa with Blair's Sudden Death Sauce in it is an experience. It is absolutely amazing. And I have used this trick to get people who have been terrified of hot sauces absolutely addicted to hot sauces. So there's your gateway drug, Blair's Sudden Death uh, Sauce mixed with hot cocoa. But It that's- comes with a
1: warning label?
2: Yes, it does. Yes, it okay. does.
0: Don't breathe this. Don't,
2: yeah. It, yeah. Seriously, don't breathe it and do not eat it straight. It is not recommended. I have to point out that I did not know this. My very first time using this sauce, I did not know you were supposed to dilute it. So I was eating uh, spicy hot wings and I poured about a tablespoon onto a wing, I like ketchup just blork onto a wing (laughs) and made it straight. And I absolutely had seizures. I mean, I was screaming, I was kicking. I drank all of the water on the table. I would just about grab the water off of the table next to me at the restaurant. Um, Liz is just laughing her butt off, and then she's like, got afraid. She's like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And I'm like, "No, no, I'm not okay." And she's like, "Oh my gosh, what do I do?" She started to panic because this this stuff was so crazily hot. Now it's funny looking back; it's hilarious. In the moment, I actually was kicking my feet and and swinging my knees. I convulsed and I need the table leg of the oh. table that was bolted to the floor. And I uh, actually uh, bruised the underside of my kneecap. This hot sauce was so hot, it nearly broke my leg. I'm not kidding wow. when I say it's so hot that I limped for a week after it. <laughs> so what? so there's your pick. That was an epic pick. And uh, I apologize for taking so long, but I, I felt that the story was worth the trip. So there you go. Yeah. Um,
0: Very nice. Cool.
1: Yeah. Well, like, I, I don't have that challenge with spicy food, but, uh, like, yeah, you're, I, you're I, from, I,
2: you're from Argentina. So you, you know what spicy food's about, right? Yes. We do.
1: <laughs> Having, um, uh, habanero, habanero
0: uh, habanero.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Habanero sauce. Well, and another type of, uh, peppers that are really hot, uh, more, a little bit more than jalapenos, but nothing like this. I would
2: like to try yeah. my next, uh, trip.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, cool. If so, you ever
0: make it up to Utah. He he's happy to indoctrinate. You.
2: I'm I'm happy to happy to do that. So habanero peppers. Just so you know, all hot sauces over about a hundred thousand Scovilles are made with habanero peppers in them. And habanero peppers twenty years ago, everywhere we could find them, they were about a hundred thousand Scoville. So that's about the heat in this sauce. The ghost pepper is a species of habanero pepper. It's the, the noco holo, or the, the boot holokia or boot jolokia pepper. And it is a type, it is a breed of habanero pepper. And it's just super, super hot. It's, it's 10 times hotter than usual habaneros. And yeah, it comes in at a million Scovilles. Just insane. I I have
1: seen the, the effects of uh, the ghost pepper.
2: Yeah. Mean on people. Like, yes. I watched some YouTube videos and like, yes. it's insane. <laughs> it's, it, the, the ghost pepper is funny when it happens to other people.
0: Then yeah. they hold up their tongue and show you the hole in it. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
2: yep. All right. Yeah, um,
0: I'm going to derail this conversation a little and go into my picks. Let's um, do that.
2: Let's do that. Let's get on with the show.
0: <laughs> so when I said, don't breathe this, it was a reference to the video series, Will It Blend? And if you haven't yeah. seen this, make your life better and go watch it. It's really, really interesting. Their video is made by a company called Blendtec. I believe they're actually located here in Orem, Utah, which isn't too far from here. It's the city I grew up in. And uh, they have, like, these uh, monster blenders, kind of like the Vitamix blenders. You know, we can blend anything and they're really funny because they are, they're, don't breathe this. And, you know, so he'll blend up an iPhone or something, you know, and so the fumes or the glass dust or whatever is stuff that you don't want to breathe. So anyway, if you're interested in whether or not you can actually blend up a whatever it is that you're interested in blending up, uh go check it out. Uh, fun videos.
1: Uh That reminds me some of like, uh you know, like those infomercials from a couple of years ago. Those like knife that can cut cans and uh-huh. metal. And then you can use to cut tomato. Like I never made a salad with all that, but, um, uh, with cans and all that kind of things. But, uh, the blender reminds me, the Blantech blender remind me the, uh, those type of commercials showing breaking things.
0: Yeah, I the think it's two or whatever.
1: Like, yeah. I think the fun part is just seeing the, the iPhone. Yeah. They getting, blend an iPhone. Yeah, that that is insane. Yeah, like, so it's like battery in...
0: chemicals, don't breathe that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, on my pick, uh I have a single one that I've been playing on my on my spare time. It's called it's a point and click game for the iPhone and uh and Android. It's called The Silent Age. If you haven't heard of it, they released a first episode uh last year and uh, proven to be kind of like the old 90s point and click adventures like uh, Indiana Jones in a sense and allow you to uh, resolve or solve a mystery and uh, the mystery being around you, around a work and around a couple of things that happen in the story it's a captivating narrative and a nice storyline and they released it this year the second uh, episode which kind of like Put a rapid and give it a conclusion to the story. And, um, it's, uh, not to spoil the thing, but it has to do with time travel. So like, if you like point and click stories and, uh, you like to be involved into something like read the, the narrative, I think it's, it's, uh, an indie shop that I created, but there is a lot of story writing in it. There is like, it's a, it's a clean story has some uh good connections between all the elements. So it's not kind of like some games are just games, you know, like to spend the time. But this one like has a, a nice thing. So it will take you maybe a couple of, not not a couple of hours, but maybe a day or two to complete the story. It's not that long, but it's a really nice story. So that's my pick. And another, I might say another one. hmm uh, it's OmniRef. OmniRef, it's a website that provides annotated code for Ruby. So you can think of in a similar way to what you can do on GitHub that you can go and comment on comments. Well, in this case, you go and comment on on source code for Ruby itself or some gems, and you can add comments with questions or you can add clarifications to those things and allow the authors perhaps to encase the documentation from another point of view. So you can search, for example, for Array Map, and be able to see the documentation of it and at the same time see this code and have comments of people describing the internals or uh, describing, for example, how the garbage collector on Ruby works, for example, and describing you any of the constants there, what they do. So for someone that likes to dig into internals and they want to not to feel alone by doing it because digging into the Ruby source code internals is scary, I recommend uh, visiting OmniRef and be able to scan that, scan for comments, see contributions from asking questions about what this means and having others, the community responding or assisting you. So it's kind of like interesting twist on crowd commenting or crowd documenting uh, code in sense. So those are my two picks.
0: Very cool. I have one more pick, and that is The Legacy Journey by Dave Ramsey. I'm a huge fan of Dave Ramsey. I think listeners to the show would know that. But Dave Ramsey is, he writes a lot about, uh, he has a radio show about finances and talks a lot about finances. But anyway, it has pretty profoundly uh, touched me, this book, and I just want to share it. It I also want to kind of give a warning that uh, if the religious kind of Christian theme isn't really your cup of tea, then this may not be the book for you, but I think it's a healthy view on wealth, and so if you want to read it for that reason, then it's terrific, but he does cite a lot of sources from the Bible and things, but overall, it was a terrific book. It has really changed the way that I think about business, about money, and uh, about my faith. So if that's your kind of thing and you're interested in it, then I can't recommend it highly enough. And that's pretty much it. So if you're listening to this, you you did miss the webinar that we uh, did last week, when this comes out last week, talking about Rails 4.2 with Jeremy Kemper and Eileen Uchitel. I am going to publish it, though, so you should be able to see it online. And then I am working on some other live training type things. So if you're interested in that, then uh, keep an eye out. You can go to railspowerup.com. And uh, as soon as I have another event lined up, then it will be there. So you can sign up and get information about it. Also, if you just text Rails to 38470, then I'll send a text message to your phone as well and let you know when the next event will be. So give that again. Text what to what number? Rails to eight. 470. Cool. And yeah, one last announcement. I set up a voicemail line. So if you want to leave feedback for the show that way, you can do it. 877-223-0342. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to having things that we can play back on the show. But yeah, so if you're interested in that, then go ahead and call that number. And Ruby Rogues is extension one. So. And it'll prompt you for that as well. So anyway. Uh, what's on ext- what's on extension 2? JavaScript Jabber.
2: Oh, very cool. Very cool.
0: Anyway, so uh, that's pretty much it. We'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. This episode is sponsored by Ninefold. Ninefold provides solid infrastructure and easy setup and deployment for your Ruby and Rails applications. They make it easy to scale and provide guided help in migrating your application. Go sign up at ninefold.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit dot ycom to learn more would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests want to support the show we have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time you can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay